Welcome to episode 104 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today at the RSA conference uh, uh, by uh, James Lewis, who is the original public intellectual on uh, uh, cybersecurity <laughs> policy, uh, uh, hanging his hat at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, and uh, famous for giving advice to two and soon to three uh, two-term presidents, uh, um, all of which they've largely ignored. Right, Jim? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm also joined by Alan Cohn, uh, who was uh, number two, <laughs> number two in the policy office at Steptoe at uh, DHS, and is now of counsel to Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, welcome, Alan. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I am Stuart Baker, uh, notorious now for having joined and rejoined Steptoe and Johnson to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, I, and uh, I have to say, I was once described as the m- most techno-literate lawyer around in the 90s, uh, uh, which uh, a reputation I uh, completely blew by uh, recording an interview earlier this week that uh, didn't record. So uh, those of you who subscribe to the podcast, Podcast, uh, got short change this week, but we will have Phil writing on uh, writing her on shortly. So let's jump into this. Uh, uh, probably uh, there's two pieces of news, but I think um, uh, the part that people are most interested in talking about is the endless Apple fight with the FBI, which is metastasizing into many, many different uh, sub-fights. Uh, uh, the FBI lost a round uh, in uh, uh, a New York magistrate's decision uh, uh, saying that he didn't think the All Writs Act uh, allowed the FBI to ask the F- uh, Apple to provide access to a uh, uh, cell phone, uh, an iPhone, uh, even though they could do it, uh, and even though this did not involve the writing of code. Uh, uh, he said, I don't think the All Writs Act actually applies uh, because Kalia um, overrode the All Writs Act by providing a more limited and focused remedy uh, uh, for law enforcement. Uh, and then by also saying he thought it was too burdensome because uh, uh, Apple wants its customers to trust them, and if they start doing nice things for the FBI, they uh, the customers won't trust them. Uh, uh, Alan, did you get a chance to look at the Orenstein opinion? So I did, and I think that, uh, you know, it's it's interesting about how much of a foreshadowing it's going to be for the San Bernardino case. It's obviously, and it's been talked about, Judge Orenstein was wanting to make a speech. Oh, he's dying to, yes. This is, this, this, this is his, his application to be promoted to district judge. Right. So I'd be, yes. So I'd be surprised if we saw kind of the same thing um, coming out of San Bernardino. But it's interesting that Judge Orenstein seems to lean, lean further forward in a case where Apple seems on shakier ground. Right. Um, but I do think that the, that the discussion... Uh, Around does the All Writs Act stri- can push this far, and has the dis- the the disagreements over Kalia effectively put boundaries on the All Writs Act? So I was around for Kalia. I don't think if if anyone had proposed that this was going to limit the All Writs Act, uh, it, it would it, that. 
suggestion would have been rejected at the time, but it was carefully negotiated. No one was thinking about this at the time. I'm pretty confident of that. Um, so it's I, while I uh, am skeptical of the argument, uh, I, I'm not sure I can completely dismiss it. Uh, so uh, it may it, look the uh, there will be probably a dozen briefs filed amicus. Tomorrow, uh, uh, in the uh, Apple case in the Central District of California, in the San, San Bernardino case, uh, uh, and uh, one of the interesting and I think uh, effective things Apple has done is to basically make it uncool if you're a technology company not to join one of these briefs. And everybody's deciding, you know, uh, which group do I want to be part of? Do I want to be part of the Twitter cool guys, uh, or do I want to be part of the Facebook and Google establishment? Guys. Well, it also seems like, do you want to be on the all Ritz Act Kalia team, or do you want to be on the constitutional First Amendment, Fifth Amendment team? Oh, God. The, 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 those are the dumbest arguments on the planet, uh, which, you know, I, uh, tells you a lot about uh, uh, the, the, the folks who want to raise those arguments. Uh, and I think it was striking that, that Apple's motion to vacate seemed like uh, it addressed those issues, largely preserved them for appeal. Yes. And, and waited for the amicus briefs to actually take them on in some substance. Yeah, I, th- I, think I, I think I said to some reporter that uh, uh, if the First Amendment argument that Apple is making applies, then the guys who are sending uh, um, encryption software to hospitals and locking up their, you know, crypto wall and the like, locking up all their files and demanding uh, a, 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 a ransom are really just engaged in exercising their First Amendment rights, and, and, and we need to give them a defense. And, and the Fifth Amendment due process uh, argument is really a substantive due process argument. This is my business. You're interfering with my business, and you can't do that. Uh, uh, the last time the substantive due process clause got a real workout, it was uh, people who said, you can't tell me how many hours my bakers can work. You can't tell me I can't use child labor. That's interfering with my business. I said, you know, uh, Apple's risk here is that uh, uh, people will start to say, well, what exactly is the difference between the Robert Barons then and Apple now? Uh, so my guess is that that, uh, that argument is not going to go very far. I think that's right. I'm, I'm more curious about the, the First Amendment briefs and whether, you know, the statement that, that code is speech I think was a useful statement in the context in which it's made, but it's not a durable statement right. that that's really going to hold up. And I, but I'm curious to see what the distinctions are going to be. Is there, a, is there going to be a discretionary versus non-discretionary test? Is it going to be an expressive uh, versus mechanical test? Um, uh, I liked the Apple's characterizations of the personal expressive nature of the of the code and its operating system. I, I was actually subpoenaed by the Ninth Circuit on code as free speech a long time ago. Right. And um, uh, I don't remember it having a clean outcome, so I was surprised that they resurrected that argument. Um, you can say it's speech. My usual answer to people was, okay, so give me a speech in code. You know. Yeah. Well, and and obviously there is some First Amendment expressive. You know, if if, if you read Schneier on cryptography, uh, uh, once you get deep into the book, half of it is code, uh, and so he's clearly expressing concepts with code. Uh, uh, and in that context, it makes sense that, to call it code. But when you're talking about the Actual physical consequences, right? This this iPhone is locked in. You will never get in. Uh, it's um, it's more conduct than speech. 
did you follow the uh, the hearings that uh, um, were held on uh, uh, encryption? There was a, um, a Comey and Bruce Sewell from Apple testified. Uh, Susan Landau testified. Uh, um, I sort of half listened to them, and I was um, I thought the Takeaway was more support for Apple than I would have expected, but by no means a uh, a tour de force from Apple's point of view. Why well, I missed the hearing, so instead I watched some Kabuki videos on YouTube. Well, I heard there was. <laughs> I'm a not con- sure there was a difference. <laughs> I heard there was a conference going on at the same time. Yeah, and um, the issue here is that that you know the the so the. This will come as news to you guys, but prosecutors are usually pretty shrewd, and so Apple kind of fell into a trap. And um, if I was going to pick a fight, this wouldn't have been the fight I would have picked. Uh, And so you've got Congress in a position where, yes, you'll see a lot of theater, and it will be exciting and dramatic. um, But no congressman is going to want to enter an election year saying, I voted for terrorism. And that's how it will be spun. So... This will never come to a vote, so, at least in the form it is now. Right. Most of the Republican candidates already have already said Apple should unlock. Uh, a, a, and it's interesting that the two um, legislative options that are actually getting a little bit of traction on the Hill now are uh, um, Feinstein and uh, Feinstein Burr, Burr yeah. uh, who are proposing to regulate it, sort of uh, bring Kalia to encryption. Yeah. Uh, SSCI. Right. Uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then uh, the moderate position is we should have a commission and force people to think seriously about what solutions there are. In, in their defense, this is uh, Senator Warner and Chairman McCall. They had come up with a commission idea well before the Apple stuff hit the front pages. So they have been pushing this as a as a solution to the, the right. how do we rethink encryption policy? They have, and uh, but what's interesting, I think, is that um, if I had been in industry six months ago, I would have said, that's a bad idea because I don't want this issue to keep coming back. I don't want people to force me to think seriously about solutions because my position is there is no solution, get over it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and now to have the, uh, the moderates essentially forced uh, to uh, consider this commission, I think, is a net loss for the uh, crypto-libertarian position. (laughs) It's worth remembering that most of the members of Congress are lawyers, and that many of them uh, are former prosecutors. So they look at this through a a special lens when it comes to thinking about legislation. My my bet is they'll prefer to dodge it. Well, that's what I was going to say. This this sounds like a commission with a report due sometime in December. Right after after the election. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, that's right. This is clearly kicking the can down the road. On the other hand, the commission can... It, it would be hard to believe the commission is going to come back and say, yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Uh, which means that the people who are on this commission who would like nothing to be done uh, about it are going to be under some pressure. Yeah, so I think they're also going to be praying that the, some of the 35,000 people who are here this week are going to figure it out between now and then. Yeah. Bail <laughs> them out. So. Okay, there you go. That's the, that is your uh, uh, requirement. Uh, um, so – I wrote uh, something that is really, you know, uh, I, I, I cannot get into Cupertino, I'm told, uh, uh, an open letter to Tim Cook saying, uh, geez, it looks to me like you've already tolerated, if not 
provided a lot more assistance to the Chinese government in building their back doors into iPhones than uh, the FBI has asked you for. Uh, uh, and that, that some of those issues did make a, a modest appearance in the uh, in the hearing. And I should say, uh, I sent an email about a week ago to Bruce Sewell, who's the general counsel of Apple, inviting him here so that he could have his uh, uh, position uh, uh, represented or maybe answer a few of the questions. Uh, he has apparently said, uh, um, oh, the Chinese government has never asked us for this, uh, what the FBI is asking for. This is the first time we've been asked for that. And, of course, the answer to that is what the FBI is asking for is, you know, a, a, a one one-hundredth of one percent of what the uh, uh, Chinese government wants with respect to iPhones and almost certainly already has, thanks to the uh, uh, the WAPI uh, uh, encryption uh, uh, formulas and chips that have been built into iPhones uh, uh, at the request of the government to the access to uh, uh all of the cloud data, which is now stored in China uh, and therefore accessible to the Chinese with whatever passes for a a production order uh, there, Uh, all done with enthusiastic support or at least uh, 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 silent support from uh, from Apple, uh, uh, which makes the argument that Gee, uh, if we do this for the FBI, repressive governments oh, will ask yeah. us for stuff. Just silly. That's silly. I mean, the repressive governments haven't waited for the Americans to make up their mind. That might have been true in the last round of the crypto wars, but people don't wait for us anymore. And the pr- Chinese, particularly under Xi, have made an immense effort to ensure that the Internet uh, does not create domestic political risk for them. And it's inconceivable to me that they would allow uh, Chinese citizens to use end-to-end encryption. So Citizen Lab had a nice report that came out this week that I thought was interesting on this topic. Uh, it was called Baidu's and Don'ts, uh, and it was a look at some of Baidu's technology and how it might be uh, interacting with the government policy. And if I if I had to summarize it, it is this, that Baidu and the apps that are built with Baidu's uh, SDK um, leak massive amounts of data uh, about the user of the computer that uh, uh, they are installed on, uh, including every website that the user goes to. Uh, And uh, uh, oddly, Baidu has built some uh, proxies that allow you to escape outside the uh, um, uh, the Great Firewall. So if you're inside China and you want to read uh, certain sites, you can use a Baidu-supplied uh, uh, proxy that will get you outside of the firewall. Uh, but it is... It sort of whitelists and blacklists certain sites, so you can't actually go to all of them, just some of them. It's almost as though there's a sort of shadow uh, policy that says, well, there are some things that we block formally, but we don't really care that much if people go to, uh, and other th- places we really want bl- uh, uh, blacklisted. Uh, and, of course, the price of that is uh, uh, you can go there, and the Chinese government is going to know because all of that data is leaked back to Baidu in ways that are easily interceptable. Uh, so it's a really interesting um, interaction between um, 
a high-tech company that that has a uh, you know a fairly progressive image in the West uh, and the government in which the uh, the company has managed to um, modestly uh, impact Chinese policies, but only by playing ball on a different level. I'm a little sympathetic to Apple, uh, and I trace all this back to the Snowden thing, which isn't particularly insightful. But all the American IT companies have – they have two problems that are related. Uh, people don't trust their products and services because of what they read with Snowden and also because of the larger privacy issue. The business model for these companies is increasingly unacceptable, particularly in places like Europe. So we're going to see a continued fermenter. Even if we were able to magically resolve the uh, Apple case – um, you're still going to see uh, European countries, China, uh, India, big markets saying, um, I'm not comfortable with how this is going. And that's, that's the larger issue that we don't have a good answer for right now. No, we don't. And, and I, I, the, the problem is if you have an iPhone, you have to trust Apple. You don't have a choice. Uh, Apple can update your, uh, your phone at any time without you having much to say about it, and uh, uh, it can put anything it wants on that phone, uh, and you can't stop it. Uh, um, and, and so this odd fight is – they're saying, yes, of course we can put anything we want on an iPhone, but we won't put what the FBI wants on the phone. Uh, uh, and the FBI says, well, you can do it. It's not that hard. You ought to do it because we have gone through all the legal process and you're subject to U.S. law. It's a, uh, it's a fundamental uh, uh, question of who you're prepared to trust. Are you prepared to trust the processes of government in the United States, uh, or uh, uh, does Apple get to say, our business model is to have people trust us, and therefore we can't afford to let anybody else into the trust tent? That's a a reasonable argument on Apple's part, but I think it points what, for me, is a large part of the issue here, which is it's really not – I've heard some privacy advocates say that if we let people use strong encryption, that will improve cybersecurity – I myself thought that in 1999, so it's hard for me to argue against it, but it it mixes apples and oranges. So I didn't even think that in 1999, because I was in the first crypto wars. <laughs> uh, I thought it was BS then, and it's it's been demonstrated. I beg your pardon. We had this argument in government. Yeah, I <laughs> but I do think it also, um, it, it's, it's interesting because it puts, it pushes Apple and the, and the CEOs of other multinationals into the space where mm. They're forced to make those decisions about which government directives they're responsive to. There's a great uh, column this week in The Economist about, you know, we're transitioning from the CEO as celebrity to the CEO as statesman, and some want it. Uh, and others just, uh, kind of find themselves in this role of either relishing the negotiations with national leaders or just being forced into a situation where they're negotiating, you know, on behalf of large constituencies, you know, which you know, which legal regimes, which national polities am I going to be responsive? So I think that's also overstated. The reason that Tim Cook gets to be a statesman, by and large, uh, is uh, his clout, uh, uh, political clout. Uh, and so he can, he can say to Jim Comey, I, I don't agree with you, and maybe make it stick. Uh, he can't do that to Xi. 
Uh, so in the end, he has to respond to the people who are able to hurt his business. And in the wake of Snowden, uh, uh, the, and, and uh, before the six, like the, Apple, uh, the iPhone six uh, came out, um, the government made it clear they were going to run a campaign. Uh, it, it essentially said it's a patriotic act to throw away your iPhone. Uh, and uh, it, they suddenly were, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the chief villain uh, in uh, uh, Chinese affairs for about a month until they caved and made all the decisions that I talked about in the cook letter. Um, and so it means that uh, you get to be a statesman until you run into somebody who's got the a market and the self-confidence to stick it to you. But yeah. if, if you were going to look at things that would predict the trend in uh, law and regulation in other countries, I think this this issue of uh, who controls the data, who has access to it, will uh, drive people in a way that could be damaging to U.S. interests. So you see the Europeans with the ECJ, uh, with the German concerns, um, you see other countries. It's a question of um, both domestic surveillance, how do they ensure that? And the issue for most countries isn't, they don't object to domestic surveillance. All countries engage in domestic surveillance. What they object to is surveillance by NSA. And they also object to surveillance by American companies. Now, it's hard to get good data on that. So if you ask French people, hey, what do you think about Google? I hate Z Google. And then you say, what search engine do you use? Well, 85% of them use Google. So there's a discrepancy there. But the trend is towards um, tighter controls on um, access to data, who gets access and how you use it. You know, we, we shouldn't mock them. I mean, everybody hates <laughs> Donald Trump except for the, he keeps winning elections. So uh, it, people don't always do what they say uh, <laughs> uh, because uh, uh, when they get, uh, you know, when they're making decisions on their own, uh, they, uh, uh, they, they choose convenience or uh, uh, political views they aren't particularly let, willing to. Let me, let me quote a senior German official who said, uh, um, I do not want to be a data colony of the United States, right? And that I think is indicative. And so I was, you know, this is. I thought the Snowden thing had sort of died down. I was I was mm-hmm. in uh, Norway last month at a meeting of European um, oil companies, and they were still going on about does NSA really spy on us? It's like no, why would we bother? And it was like no, no, you're in, you're doing everything. So yeah. it's a powerful incentive for people. Apple's strategy of standing up to the FBI, I think, ultimately won't work. I understand why they're doing it. It's, it's not a bad conclusion to come to. But I don't think it will be persuasive to these foreign concerns about surveillance and privacy. Yeah. So speaking of privacy, the EU and the U.S. have finally given us the details on the privacy shield uh, uh, renamed from the safe harbor uh, uh, by somebody, I don't know who. Um, a, a, and it sort of fits your, your thesis because it is the same damn agreement uh, with a few tweaks. Uh, uh, the agreement... Uh, Adds, I, I, Alan, you looked at this, but it, it looks to me as though they've really elaborated on the remedies for people who, who think that a company has not lived up to its promises. And then they have some assurances that uh, the U.S. government really is doing what the U.S. government said with respect to intelligence collection. But basically, it's 95% what Safe Harbor said. I, I have to admit, I didn't look at it that closely, because when I saw the name, I thought it was a hygiene product. <laughs> and, you know, it just was like... 
That's oh. what it is. Mais oui. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. I, I saw the, the, the headline, and, and I, I think that the, uh, the idea that, that um, the U.S. and the EU released details on the agreement is kind of a generous ah. uh, statement. Um, but, again, it's kind of uh, it's a lot of statements about that really kind of get you to the same place about um, reassurances of strong obligations on companies, robust enforcement, clear safeguards, transparency obligations. I think that's right. I think the most substantive things that you see uh, are the availability of an alternative dispute resolution mechanism with the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, I liked the the, um, the fact that you can now um, uh, take your case directly to Kathy Novelli at the State Department, uh, who is the, um, as the EU terms it, the, the ombuds person. Um, and, uh, and I think that's great. I'd love to bring my disputes to Kathy Novelli. I'm Absolutely. curious to see how that's going to work. But, um, but I think that is the most substantive difference that you can see in this. So, I, I mean, and, and on the theme of um, Europe just wants to be able to hate Silicon Valley no matter what, whether mm-hmm. they're, if they're cooperating with law enforcement, they hate them uh, for cooperating with law enforcement. If they don't cooperate with law enforcement, they want to hate them for that. So the f- uh, French legislators are proposing to find Apple a million dollars for every iPhone they don't decrypt. Before we move away from, what's it called? Privacy Shield. Oh, Privacy Shield, yeah. Safe Harbor 2. Two uh, points to think about. One, um, there's a good chance that this will stick, and so a European Commission official I know told me that the change was when the uh, privacy people and the um, IT people kind of got shoved out of the way by the the trade... uh, Director, yes, which is which is the heavy in the European Union, and so the trade guys in the EC want this deal to work. Well, they can't afford to have too much scrutiny of whether uh, the entire data protection scam in Europe is really just about protecting their data centers and their data processing industry. What do you really think about that? <laughs> but, but on that note, it's it's not the end of the dispute. And so what the Europeans are gearing up for is the renewal of uh, Section 702 uh, in 2017, which is the um, – a foreign intelligence provision that allows uh, the Americans to spy on foreigners. And so they they have been asking sort of discreetly commission officials, European government officials, so what are you guys going to do on 702? And it's like, well, I don't know. Oh, I we're, know. The I, debate's we're not going to – we're not going to – we're going to do, do tiny tweaks. We thought it was funny in looking at it internally because if you got rid of 702 and the authorities it gives you to spy on foreigners, the default would then be executive order 12333 which um, actually imposes fewer constraints. So we were saying maybe we should get rid of 702, and then you could make the Europeans happy, and you could even do more spying. That's yeah, not going to happen. That isn't going to happen. Uh, uh, because there is, a, there is a domestic constituency for limits on 702. I don't but, think it's a very strong but, uh, but if you're looking for debates coming down the road, the 702 debate will be one uh, starting probably at the end of the year. Yep. Uh, let me pick on one more demonstration that uh, uh, most other countries just want to hate Silicon Valley and they don't really care uh, what they hate it for. Um, uh, Brazil has uh, uh, announced that or has actually arrested a Facebook uh, officer uh, because Facebook owns WhatsApp and WhatsApp famously says when uh, when you ask for the content of WhatsApp uh, communications, oh, we can't do anything about that. Uh, 
because we put in end-to-end encryption. Uh, and uh, Brazil uh, had the idea that maybe if Facebook, uh, Facebook um, executives spent time in a Brazilian jail, he'd see it differently. Uh, he was freed recently. This is sort of pretty quickly freed, just as the last time a, a judge uh, ordered WhatsApp just to close down uh, for uh, a day. That order was uh, rescinded in about 12 hours. But it's pretty clear that uh, uh, an unyielding stance of we've got no, no way to help your law enforcement agencies um, only plays well abroad when you're talking about defying American uh, institutions. When you talk about when you start defying local law enforcement, you get a very different reaction. Well, I think we should we should have a wheel for these, you know, one of those spin wheels, and uh, we can spin the wheel for which country is hating on the U.S. tech industry, and we can just kind of land on a different one each time. Well, yeah, it's sort of uh, uh, what is the uh, that game where you you have uh, sentences, uh, you know, I hate you because, right. and and then you just drop in whatever uh, random reason you need. You know, it was interesting. Also, the the little subtext underneath um, the WhatsApp issue goes back to something that was we were discussing just a few minutes ago, which is that texting in Brazil isn't free, right? This is the, tel- the telcos make money on, on the texting, but not on the WhatsApp. And so... Uh, well, they, but uh, this, is, this is true. This is a stick that a local industry can always use to beat American competitors with. It almost never works in the long run, but it creates a lot of friction. So uh, uh, Deutsche Telekom is famous for campaigning for the importance of keeping your German data in German hands. Uh, and uh, uh, they've, they've made a lot of progress in that. I don't think it's going to save their cloud business in the long run, but uh, uh, it is, um, it's going to slow their decline at least. Yeah, if anyone is listening from uh, from Snapchat, though, we are in the market for our own geotag on, Snap, on Snapchat. Yes. So, right, so. All right. Uh, and uh, uh, the other uh, thing that I thought I'd ask Jim about uh, oh. is uh, Kaspersky uh, and uh, a couple of other companies put together an analysis of uh, what they called the Lazarus Group, uh, which is uh, one of the uh, uh, hacking uh, organizations uh, that points directly and clearly at North Korea, I thought, uh, and and really justifies uh, and provides a lot of technical support for the FBI's earlier uh, tagging of Kim Jong-un as the author of the Sony attack, uh, uh, and indicating that the Koreans have been doing this, the North Koreans have been doing this uh, really since about 2007 to 2009, uh, and uh, increasingly effectively. I remembered what I wanted to say on the earlier topic. Uh, okay, which is jump right in. That, uh, and we'll come back to North Korea because I want to do a poll. Um, one of the we're at a transitional moment here. I always say that, but the the freedoms that um, IT companies had to operate globally are rapidly being eroded, and we have not yet seen the people who don't like the old vision of how the world worked come up with a, a, a good alternative or a credible platform for advancing that alternative. But the desire is there, and you see that through all these national laws that impose constraints on foreign companies. That's not going away. And so the question is, how best do we, um, how best do we respond to this? We can't continue to make the arguments we've been making now for about 20 years 
and expect them to have traction in these new countries. And to give you an example, a little bit off topic, but uh, I was talking to a Malaysian uh, vice minister who said to me, why do American laws apply on Malaysian networks? And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I, our, my laws outlaw child pornography and online gambling, but Malaysians can, you know, access this through American uh, websites. And your law trumps my law on the Internet. So, well, that's not necessarily the case. You have the right within your country to do whatever you want, subject to your international commitments. What you don't have the right to do is extraterritorial application. And that's what people are scrounging around for. Is there a way to have extraterritorial application? This is what I, the way mm-hmm. I would define uh, privacy shield. Can I have extraterritorial application in my regulations to trammel the American? So in some ways, it doesn't matter what our debate is because the rest of the world is moving out. We could try and figure out a way to get around that, but... So indeed, if I were the FBI and I were looking for um, solutions to propose short of uh, uh, a golden key, I might say, you know what, we should have a law that requires companies to tell the FBI everything by way of access that they have provided to every foreign government uh, that asks uh, uh, so that the FBI can say, well, if you did that for them, you ought to do that for us if they choose to. Uh, um, uh, oh, that, uh, that would be a uh, – that would respond directly to the uh, the FBI shouldn't be making uh, a precedent uh, argument, uh, but I can't believe there's anybody in Silicon Valley who wants to have that conversation with the Bureau. Uh, you know, the the – the big problem for me domestically is the uh, evidentiary rules because what I was thinking, of course, is, um, you know what, uh, I can't do it here, but um, some other country can do it. So I'll just break into their networks and steal it, right? I don't know what the you, – you can tell me. If um, I probably there's minimization requirements, right? But if mm-hmm. if the Chinese collect data on Americans, I don't think they have a minimization requirement. They, they have a maximization requirement. But then I steal that data from the Chinese. Am I am I caught? I'm probably I think I'm caught. That's too bad. But yeah, it's it's counterintelligence. But uh, yeah, you probably you probably yeah. do have to minimize it afterwards. I get a fight, so. But it, it, if if if, it, if you discover that uh, uh, certain Americans are engaged in activity that uh, could be espionage, you can you can disclose. Their but one of the ideas. one of the big differences between the current debate and the old crypto wars is that um, we were the majority of internet users. We built the products. We uh, mm-hmm. offered the services. Um, in the, at the end of the 1990s, we had a control and a dominance that we no longer have. Right. So how do we adjust to, this is a larger problem in foreign policy, but we're just, we're just, we, we might be the biggest among, uh, many, but it's, we're now, we're not alone and we cannot set the rules by ourselves. Even if we set rules that make people happy here, um, that may not pacify the rest of the world. Yeah, well, I, I think um, clearly the First Amendment is uh, a local ordinance, uh, and and uh, and oddly that means that every government in the world can shape the kind of experience you have on the internet, other than the U.S. Uh, um, so that uh, uh, it won't take much for European standards of hate speech to be enforced in the United States, which means that there are certain political opinions, uh, probably every one ever expressed by 
by Donald Trump uh, that uh, uh, don't pass muster under European law. Uh, and so uh, uh, increasingly we could find that um, uh, places like Twitter and Facebook are being fined for allowing Americans to say things that American law uh, would protect from uh, U.S. government censorship. Well, I don't think we're not there yet, but I mean, people would like to go there. So there's a lot of discomfort with the First Amendment. And there's a general consensus with a very few number of countries disagreeing that you do have the right to free speech, but the limits of that free speech are not agreed on. And we're unlikely to reopen that debate. I think if we put the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to a vote today, um, we wouldn't get it. So uh, we ought to make sure we have time for uh, uh, questions. Uh, Can I just do a quick poll? How many people in the room think that North Korea wasn't responsible for Sony? Anyone? Wait, there's one still left? Well, yeah. that's great. That's good. Uh, yeah, that, I, you for, he, no, he probably used to work for Norse uh, when Norse was a company. Anyway. Uh, okay. Um, all right. Uh, first question. To Stuart's yep. point, though, is how did the U.S. know it was North Korea? And there's a line in the uh, State of the Union address from 2014 about how integrating different intelligence sources allow us to um, attribute the source of attacks with much greater success than in the past. On an, for intelligence purposes, unfortunately not for law enforcement. Okay, question. I would like to uh, revisit uh, the issue of uh, Apple versus the FBI. During the uh, cryptographer's panel on Tuesday, I suggested a certain course of action, and I would like to check with you whether it raises any problems uh, from the point of view of American law. What I said was that uh, This is the wrong fight that Apple uh, chose in this particular case. Apple should comply, but roll out as quickly as possible a patch to all the existing iPhones, uh, which will tie its hands in the future. Namely, I disagree with you that Apple can do anything it wants. Uh, If Apple now rolls out an update... Uh, which uh, will make certain portions of the operating system unpatchable in the future, they can do it because uh, it is the software running on the iPhone which determines what can and cannot be done when you are uh, issuing uh, new patches. So because I would like uh, Apple to be able to honestly say in the future that they could not uh, help the FBI, they have to close the current loophole, And I don't want them to do an obstruction of justice, and that's why I suggest that they should comply with the current request. So is it legal to make sure that all other iPhones except that particular one cannot be uh, attacked uh, with this approach? Yeah, so so uh, I... I remember Oracle's campaign that said unbreakable. Um, uh, The campaign that would support this would say unpatchable. Right, so that we can, if there's a, if there's a problem, if we are not all seeing and all knowing in, in the security we've built into these portions of our code, you're just screwed because we can never patch it. Uh, so I'm not sure that's the smartest thing for, for Apple to do. Is it legal? That's my question. Yes, it's, of course it's legal. And, well, with the one caveat that it would depend also on the effect it had in other markets. So the effect it had in, in China, for example, if it, if it had spillover effect in China, it may, may be contrary to Chinese law. That's yeah. something that Apple can handle. Okay. Thank you. Well, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, this is a little bit the, um, the lava bit solution. Um, I'm going to do something that makes it so expensive and painful 
to uh, to give access that you'll never ask me for that. Well, it didn't work out so well for Lava Bit, uh, and uh, it's the kind of kind of fu to the U.S. government that uh, could really cement a determination that any time they have the chance to stick it to Apple, they will do that. Uh, that's a political consequence. Right. Right. I, I think that's right. Today, today you can do anything you want with respect to encryption that you sell in the United States, including making it impossible to. Uh, uh, to undo, a, even stay in your own hand. Uh, but the consequences of selling something that can't be patched, I think, is uh, th- that's a very risky. Uh, well, and that was a conscious decision in the uh, Clinton administration to uh, decontrol encryption, to allow people untrammeled access to any encryption product. And at the time, we thought that would be. Uh, beneficial for security. So it's really re- revisiting the, reba- the balance of risk uh, 15 years later uh, that we're going through now. It's a, different, it's a very different world than the world we assumed it would be in 2000. Okay, next question. Great. How neat to follow the, the coolest kid at this geek party. Um, Dave Weitzel from American Bar Association Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. For Jim Lewis, um, Stuart jokes, but in the beginning of the last administration and leading up to it, you led a very wonderful panel that gave great advice to this the, this administration. Tell us what you're doing these days to get the next folks um, have it more right than wrong. Oh, that's a really long conversation, so maybe we can talk afterwards. But uh, And I've restrained myself so far during RSA, but a lot of the solutions we're seeing – being proposed are solutions that we've tried. My favorite is, of course, information sharing, which was a Dick Clark's idea in 1998. Well, don't forget public-private partnership. Public-private partnership, another favorite phrase of mine. Um, so what we're trying to do is say, are there new things we can do? Are there different approaches? The, the one that came up yesterday was this very much this question of um, managed services, uh, which relates a little bit to the cloud. But do you... Do you want people, and it relates a little bit to Apple providing it with strong encryption. Do we want to get most folks out of the business and let someone else do it? That's probably. Okay, next question. Uh, thank you all for an interesting discussion. Um, it's been said before that this fight between Apple and the FBI is symptomatic of a larger problem, lack of regulation, lack of clear laws, not just for encryption, but cybersecurity in general. It's now common for people to point out analogies to the railroad industry and the auto industry. So I wanted you guys to do a little prognosticating. How far is the U.S. away from significant government standards and regulation for commercial cybersecurity? Is it decades? Is it the next major attack on a critical piece of infrastructure? How does that look to you guys? We, we actually did the analysis that was, uh, and largely this is, don't laugh, but I wrote my master's thesis on the electrical industry and regulation. Um, God knows why. And uh, what you and so using that as a precedent, we then looked at railroads, electricity, uh, airplanes, automobiles, and we found that on our steamboats, which was my bachelor's thesis, I'm just nuts. Um, <laughs> how long did it take? And it takes between 20 and 40 years to regulate a new technology in the U.S. And usually there has to be a series of disasters that force people's hands. And so I don't know, we're about, what, at about uh, 20 years for the commercial Internet. 
So sometime, this is a terrible answer, sometime in the next two decades. <laughs> well, well, but I think we're seeing, the, we're seeing the beginnings of it from the independent regulatory agencies and, mm-hmm. uh, in the specific areas, and, and, but, but the, the general regulation. Yeah. The, other, the other thing that's different from those earlier examples is this is a global network, and so um, I think you'll see uh, forcing actions from other countries, right, and that's, uh, not necessarily China and Russia. We can also we can always dismiss them, but the European precedent to extend uh, regulatory control um, will be hard for the U.S. to respond. To I, I think that's ignore. right. The, the, the other countries, um, a, to use a sort of naval artillery uh, uh, analogy, are bracketing the target, uh, uh, and they keep missing, but they miss by less every time. Uh, they are going to find tools that uh, um, U.S. tech companies cannot ignore, uh, you know, uh, data protection fines that are 2% of gross global revenue. That gets anybody's attention. Uh, uh, threatening access uh, uh, for Apple to the Chinese market, that will get their attention and force their compliance. Uh, uh, they are finding ways to regulate already. Uh, and even in the United States, um, uh, increasingly it looks as though we're in the market consolidation stage and a whole host of Internet technologies in which uh, uh, people have secure dominance in a niche and um, the companies that have those secure uh, uh, dominance niches are having to negotiate with the government uh, over which things the government gets to regulate. Uh, uh, so the days when you could uh, uh, take seriously the declaration of independence uh, uh, from your republics of um, steel and meat or whatever it was that uh, <laughs> uh, we uh, heard about in the 90s, those days are already over. Just a quick uh, – you can talk about this topic, so I just, just real quick, though, that the, the emphasis, I think, will be less on products and more on data flows. And so, you know, the cliché is that data is the new, you know, whatever that flows globally. And the same way that we developed uh, financial – global financial standards and regulations and institutions after a series of embarrassing crashes – uh, I think the same process will apply. So you, you might see this more in data access flows first. Last question. Hi. I see more and more companies applying uh, client-side encryption practices. Um, and I read an opinion somewhere on the Internet that uh, encrypted data, while it's encrypted, is not to be considered uh, a personal data. Hmm. So if a personal data gets encrypted and at rest it's encrypted, it's not a personal data. So I think that that might be true to the extent that you are uh, transmitting it uh, uh, through a, a third country that doesn't have doesn't meet adequacy standards. I could see you say, well, it doesn't matter what their standards are; they can't read it. Uh, I'm I'm much more skeptical that you could say, I I have personal data. I encrypted it. Now I don't. Uh, I, I think you still have custody if you have the ability to decrypt it. That's my guess. So, so, so my question is really assuming that it's well governed. Have you ever seen this working anywhere in the U.S. accepted by a government body or any healthcare organization? 
assuming that decryption is well governed. Yeah, you know, I, it seems to me years ago, uh, and, and I'm sure that this continues, there have been circumstances in which uh, uh, neither side trusts the other, but they want to share some information, so they share information, they hash it in the same way. You can say, well, now we, we know we have a, a match because we hashed everybody's name who um, we're suspicious of, and it turns out that you're suspicious of the same person we are because the name matches, so let's decrypt that record and leave all the other records encrypted. So um, as a way of doing data sharing in an atmosphere of low trust, uh, uh, that kind of thing has been talked about for 15 years and I suspect is already in operation in classified environments. But the, the goal for me is to get more people to use encryption. I still think that would be good. I don't, I don't, and, and when you look at some of the more embarrassing breaches we've had, if had encryption been in greater use, they might not have occurred. But um, the issue then is, is this end-to-end? Is it recoverable? I mean, what is the thing? But, you know, I still think more use of encryption would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to thank the audience. I know we have to stop it. Um, I'm so happy that no one said the letters PKI in sequence. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, 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 it, it, it's hard to believe, uh, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, but I, I, we do have to stop. So, Jim Lewis, thank you. Thank you. As always, it was the Jim Lewis uh, show. Uh, and thanks also to Alan Cohn. Uh, uh, the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. If you want to send us uh, notes at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. This has been episode 104 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're currently at RSA, uh, uh, and uh, coming up, we've got uh, some coin, Bitcoin uh, uh, interviews. Uh, Adam Segal from Hacked World Order uh, and uh, Suzanne Spaulding from the uh, U.S. Department of Home and security. We hope you'll join us for those and other uh, presentations as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thanks.